need that, and we need each other, and we can't be do-it-yourself Christians. Bridge kids, you may go, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. The Father meets the Son. Mark chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 14 through 29. I do confess that I've taken a different tack this week. It's the same passage. Last week I said the title was Spiritual Warfare, and I've changed that. So I'm sorry that I misled you. My sermon titles are not inspired. Um, It was just a good guess, and I changed my mind. So we're going to call this um, A Father Meets the Son. So here we come to um, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through uh, 24 is our first section. A father needs a son. A father needs a son. And uh, you can follow along on your outline. And the fathers today still need the son. And let's look at the context in uh, verses 14 through 16. And... It says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, the teachers of the law arguing with them. So we've got to have a little context here. What in the world is this talking about? Um, earlier in Mark chapter 9, Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountaintop, a high location. An amazing thing happened. The scriptures say Jesus was transfigured before them, and he changed and become... Uh, he revealed himself in his glory. And the, the disciples didn't know what to do with this. P- Peter, James, and John had this privilege to see Jesus. Uh, it's sort of like Jesus pulled back the veil just for a few minutes to see Jesus in his glory. The body was sort of a cover-up. To God, Jesus was God, and he had this body added on. And just for a few minutes, he displays what he's really like and what he's going to be like when he returns. And on that occasion, an unusual thing happens that two Old Testament leaders, prominent leaders, appear with Jesus at the same time. This is a major miracle here. Moses returns. Moses of the 15th century before Christ. Elijah returns, 8th century before Christ. They're standing talking to Jesus, talking to him about his departure. And the disciples are just awed by this experience. And if you remember, a cloud enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. That was for Peter especially. And God spoke for three disciples that message. Now this is the context. When they came down, verse 14, to the other disciples, nine left behind... Peter, James, and John, Jesus return. They find the nine. They saw a large crowd with them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So the nine disciples have gotten into an argument with the religious leaders. And, and you know, Jesus slips away and now he comes back and uh, here they, Jesus finds them arguing. And a uh, little reminder too. Now, what are the Jewish religious leaders doing here? be the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. What are they doing here? Well, if you recall, they've been following Jesus almost wherever he would go. It's like the first century Jewish CIA, and they're set out 
to follow Jesus and to find him at fault so they can arrest him. They're going to bring charges against him, and they have been following him. And let's look at the map. There we go. Here's the map. And uh, this reminder, so Sea of Galilee, that Jesus' public ministry was uh, really focused around the Sea of Galilee. He had been in Caesarea Philippi on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Peter got it. And Jesus said, who, who do people say that I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Peter got it. What was that? And so then you see Mount Hermon. And that's very likely where the transfiguration, within walking distance of Caesarea Philippi, um, very likely where the transfiguration took place. Now, we have Jerusalem on here because... Jerusalem is where the teachers of the law came from. They had, they've walked all the way up to follow Jesus, not to obey him, but to catch him at a fault. And so, you know, they're putting a lot of effort into this to keep track of Jesus. And here they are arguing with the nine disciples. Now, another thing I want you to know about Jer- Jerusalem is this. The book of Mark, we've gone through eight chapters. The book of Mark is now making a major churn, turn. We have been in the Galilee area, and Jesus has gone way up north, and now he's turning south, and he's going to Jerusalem. He's hell-bent for Jerusalem, and he, that's where he's going to die, and he knows it, and he's been telling his disciples, and uh, they're really slow on the uptake about this. Uh, verse 15, as soon as they... Uh, all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about, he asked. So there's a large crowd. Uh, the disciples are there and the teachers of the law, and they're arguing, arguing with nine disciples about ministry failure of the other nine disciples. So that's what's going on. And so Jesus comes with Peter, James, and John, and he, he encounters this argument. We're going to understand their failure shortly. Uh, the people are excited about Jesus' arrival. You know, Jesus has this rock star celebrity. He's a miracle worker. People are excited about his presence. They want to see him perform. So there's a, there are people who are just interested in his popularity. And yes, within that, there's always people who are truly seeking to find out and discover Jesus. Um, Jesus is asking why they are arguing. Um... And then verses 17 and 18, we come to a father's story. What's the argument about? And this is the answer, verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. So here is a concerned father, and um, he knows something about Jesus. We don't know that if if he's ever seen Jesus before. We don't know if he's seen Jesus teach, but he's definitely heard about Jesus And his son is in major need, and so he knows he's hoping Jesus is going to be able to help him. So he brings his son to Jesus, and he explains that his son is possessed by a spirit, demonized, um, demonic possession, that has robbed him of speech. And then verse 18, he says, um, whenever the spirit, it seizes him, the the demonic spirit, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive them 
out the Spirit, but they could not. And that's the problem. Just a couple comments here. There, there's probably two issues with this young man's health. Uh, perhaps he has uh, the physical issue of epilepsy. Perhaps. But it's very clear that he also has a demonic presence. He has a spirit. And Jesus is going to address that. And this is, by the way, is not uncommon to have... Uh, Spiritual issues are often very complicated. There's like no simple answer to demonization. And I personally believe in that demonization is a real possibility and the demons are very real and they're fallen angels. They're, they're uh, very much alive and well today and they, they are active and uh, the Apostle Paul tells us about them in Ephesians chapter 6 and warns us and reminds us of the importance of spiritual warfare on our part. Um, the problem here is the failure of the disciples. This man came to Jesus in faith, and Jesus is not there, so he goes to nine of his disciples, and he asked for help, and he said, would you deliver um, my son from the Spirit? And they failed. Now, there's also religious leaders there, teachers of the law, and they're arguing with the disciples, and they're probably gloating over the failure of the disciples. And so Jesus really comes to the rescue of his own disciples here. Verse 19, um, a lack of faith, verse 19. He says, Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. This is kind of a rebuke on Jesus' part. He's, he's invested a lot of time with these people. He's invested a lot of time with the crowds. He's invested a lot of time with religious leaders over and over again. The religious leaders should have been the first to catch who Jesus is. Um, Jesus said, he came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The king, right here, present, Jesus. And he proved it. How did he do that? He did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It was all public. Who is this guy? He's the Messiah. Do you get it? No, we don't get it. They should have been the first. They, they knew the Old Testament. They knew what Isaiah said about the Messiah. You have the Father. Now, the Father has come and give him credit. He goes to Jesus and he has some faith because he's hoping Jesus is going to heal him. But, hey, the disciples failed. That's kind of discouraging. His faith is kind of waffling right now. But most importantly, it's the disciples. What's wrong here? Why didn't, why didn't disciples, why weren't they able to handle this ministry opportunity that they had been given? And, again, what we're finding here in the Gospel of Mark Jesus has had this large public ministry, but he's continuing now to focus on his disciples. He continues to want to train them because he's about to leave the whole thing to them. He's, he's going to take off and he's going to leave ministry to them. So um, Mark chapter 4, verse 40, kind of reminds us of, us of what's been happening with disciples. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Um, that was uh, right after crossing the Sea of Galilee and Jesus calmed the storm. He displays his power and it's like they don't quite get it. Mark chapter 6, verses 49 through 52. 
But when they saw him walking on the lake, Jesus walking on water, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. Next slide. They were completely amazed. Jesus wants more than people being amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves, about the time that he fed the 5,000. And their hearts were hardened. There's something about their spiritual receptors that must be clogged. They're not getting all this information about Jesus. Um, Mark chapter 8, verses 17 through 21. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and your ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Next slide. When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, remember? That was an object lesson. If you got Jesus, what else do you need? You got five loaves and two fish. How much do you need? And Jesus. And they have to go around and pick up 12. They have to hand pick, put it in the basket, carry the basket. Do you get it? Jesus is enough here. And when I broke seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? The answer is seven. He said, do you still not understand? They're missing something. It, we just see it. And, well, we would get it if we would have been there. I'm not sure we would have. I'm not sure I would have anyway. I probably would have done some of the same dumb things the disciples did. That, that's what's great about the Bible. These are just normal human people. With, they're full of flaws. Um, so why couldn't the disciples cast the demon out of the young boy? You know what? In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons. And they did. But the issue here is going to be a lack of faith on their part. A little bit of do-it-yourself discipleship. Verse 20, we have a demonic encounter. So they uh, brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion, and he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. This is kind of bizarre behavior. The boy was the only child. We learn that from Luke chapter 9, verse 38. The man who brought his child, it was the only child. It was his only son. The behavior of the boy is clearly influenced by the presence of a demon here. And it's like meeting Jesus, the demon responds with a convulsion and throws the boy to, a ground, to the ground. Verses 21 through 24, a need for faith. And Jesus shows compassion and personal interest. In verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Self-destructive behavior, suicidal tendencies, very often a sign of the influence of the demonic. When I hear about a suicide, one of the first things I think about is the influence. I don't mean necessarily demonic possession. I just mean influence of the enemy is such a, a deceiver and a destroyer. And um, here, using this demon to uh, 
seek to destroy this child. So now the father seeks Jesus for help. He says, it's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I admire the father for he's come to Jesus and he's speaking directly. Now, um, he gets mildly rebuked here in verse 23. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. If you can, yes, Jesus can. That's not the problem. The problem is not, is God able? The problem is, does this man believe? And, you know, I feel sympathy for the for the man, because nobody's been able to help his son, probably tried lots of things for help. Um, certainly the Jewish teachers here aren't of any help. The disciples tried and they failed. And so I would guess this guy's pretty discouraged. And he came to Jesus and he was hoping for help, and yet the disciples weren't able to help him. So now he's, he's saying, uh, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So the man's a little bit less sure than he was before. Jesus puts the focus on God's ability. God is able. Everything is possible for those who believe. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. So the father expresses faith. And I think the words of Jesus even encourage him. Uh, when Jesus said everything is possible uh, for those who believe. And, and he, it's like he's on the right track. And he, he I do believe. And then uh, he sort of qualifies it. Help me overcome my unbelief. Because, you know, I have some questions. Here's another thing I love about scriptures. This is so real. This is such a human response when it comes to faith. You know, if uh, you were trying to make the Bible perfect, you would leave out stuff like this. But this is what happened, you know. This is the way it happened. And this is how the man responded. And it's just like we would respond. I do believe, but boy, I sure got a lot of questions sometimes. Uh, his faith is not perfect. But he knows to ask help from Jesus. And I commend him for that. He knows he needs the help. There's a big warning for us, a danger for us. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians who have questions about faith and they don't do anything to get help. They just stay. Non-Christians have questions too. They stay stuck because they don't seek help. And uh, a lot of times Christ followers have a lot, you know, there's a lot of things they're good with, but they have, they, they have areas where they just don't seem to want to trust God in, and they don't seem to do anything about it, and they don't seem to ask for help, and they're not real interested about growing their faith beyond where they are. In Luke chapter 1, verse 37, the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary about the birth announcement of Jesus, and um, Mary can't figure out how she's going to get pregnant because she's not married. And uh, the angel says, for no word from God will ever fail. That's the newer NIV. The older NIV says, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. 
a virgin can become pregnant by an act of the Holy Spirit. God is able. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is Christianity 101. If you want to please God, you are going to need to trust him. You're going to need to believe. You're going to need to believe in who he is. You're going to need to believe in his promises. You can't please God without faith. Okay. I have a $20 bill in my hand. Who believes me? One? Oh, he put his hand down. One? <laughs> Anybody else believe me? We got one firm. <laughs> okay. I have a $20 bill in my hand. Who believes me? Okay, we've got a few more people who believe. (laughs) Guess what? That's not faith, is it? Because you know it now. You see it. Faith is, can you trust me? I blame you for not trusting me this morning, but it's about, can you trust the person who speaks? And the issue for us is, can we trust what God says? That's faith. We, We don't always see the answer. We don't always see what we'd like to see. But can you trust God? And the answer is, yes, you can. Will you? That's the question of faith. Will you trust? I know somebody, if you can guess the serial number, I'll give it to you, (laughs) Matthew. Afterwards, okay. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 remind us of a very important thing, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. See, the Christian life starts with faith. It's not something you earn or you deserve. It starts by faith. This is not from yourselves. You can't be a do-it-yourselfer. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God from the beginning until the end. Not by works. You can't work your way so, so that no one can boast. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 17 says, The righteous will live by faith. You start by faith, and then day by day you live by faith. That's what's going to please God, living by faith. John three sixteen. Perhaps the best known passage in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The issue is by faith. You start the Christian life by faith. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you start by faith. You start by believing. Believing what? Believing that God loves you. Believing that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, that his son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins, that the Father accepted this payment for our sins, and God the Father is totally satisfied with the issue of sin 
The question is, can you believe him? Can you believe what God has said about his son? Can you place your faith in Jesus Christ? That's where it begins. So, let's continue. Luke chapter 9. We've seen a father needs a son, verses 14 through 24. Now the son helps a father, verses 25 through 29. Verse 25 is a power encounter. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, you see, Jesus didn't want to amaze people. He did not want to be a spiritual rock star. He rebuked the impure spirit. He just gets right to work. He's not going to wait for people to come and see. He's not trying to impress. He rebukes the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit. Now, he's not name-calling. What he's doing is identify uh, the cause behind the deafness of this young boy and this inability of the young boy to speak. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And so Jesus speaks with power and authority. And, you know, over and over again, God speaks with authority and things happen. That's how Jesus created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1. He just spoke and things came into existence. And when Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 9, 19, he is going to speak judgment on the earth. And now he speaks to a demon. And uh, the demon is vanquished, verse 26. The spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out, and the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. So the light of the world um, faces the forces of darkness, and the demon leaves the child in defiance. The child appeared without life. Verse 27, the son helps a son. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. So Jesus personally, this, you know, here's, the, here's this boy uh, laying on the ground. And Jesus walks up, and he puts out his hand, picks up his hand, and the strength of Jesus passes right to this young boy, and the young boy stands up. Jesus did what the disciples could not do. And now Jesus will get alone with his own disciples, and he's going to debrief. This was his pattern. Public ministry, come back, private ministry, time for Q&A. And so verses 28 and 29, the private instruction. After Jesus had gone indoors, we don't know where. We don't even know what city they're in yet. His disciples ask him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Good question. What was the problem here? Why couldn't we drive this out? Verse 29, he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is what Jesus had been teaching them from the beginning. This is what Jesus had modeled for them from the beginning. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed to pray. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed to ask his Father for help. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, depended on God for strength. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, got alone with his Father every day just to handle the daily grind. The disciples had learned this, but they have fallen back into a default mode of do it yourself. 
They began to rely on their own abilities. They had cast out demons before by the power of God and the authority of God. But this was a major failure. Why? They were trying to do it without God's help. They were just going to do it. They're experienced. That's a big danger for us. It's just doing the Christian life because we did it yesterday without renewal of our relationship with God, renewal of our needing to depend on Christ and our needing his strength and our needing his help and our needing his power for us to overcome sin and to deal with temptation. They were just relying on their own abilities, and that's what we do too. This is a major danger for us. Um, So, don't be a do-it-yourself Christian. You need help. I need help. We all need help every day. We're going to close our service this morning and um, have a time of prayer. Let's just all stand. I'd like to close our service with prayer. And as our worship team comes, they're going to lead us in a closing song. And then we're going to have uh, a prayer team up front. And if you would like anyone to pray pray for you at the end of our service, uh, just come up to one of our uh, people who will pray, and they will be glad to pray with you. Let's pray together now. Father, we just want to bow before you and uh, just acknowledge that often, God, we are do-it-yourself Christians. We easily go into a default mode of acting like we can do life without you, acting like we don't want to bother you, and yet you desire our total dependence on you. You desire that we live under the lordship of Christ and that we ask for your help every day. We take for granted uh, your provision in our lives, and we don't say thank you. We don't acknowledge what you do. We don't acknowledge that you are the one who provides our daily bread. Everything that we have every day comes from you, and we just take it for granted. Father, may we be mindful of our need to depend upon you. Stop us from being do-it-yourselfers, for Jesus' sake. Amen.